Hey y'all, it's Bo here. Uh, welcome to Midtimers. Um, it's going to be me for a little while because Dolly is out of town. And so today we're doing a follow-up episode on step four. So last week we talked about Dolly and how she does her step four. And today I'm going to be talking about how I do step four. Um, and I just wanted to kind of start by talking about step four and what it's like and what it encompasses. Um, because for me it's actually one of my favorite and most used steps. Um, because it's always applicable in life. So, and part of the, and like part of what I love so much about step four is, for those of you that don't know, step four is about taking a fearless moral inventory of yourself. And one of the reasons it's so important for addicts, but also really just human beings in general, is because we are often very blinded to what reality really is. And so reality to us really kind of revolves around how we choose to see it. And step four is about removing ourselves from the process and seeing things a little bit more clearly. Um, And so it really is a clarity step. It really is a clarity step, which is really instrumental to growth and healing at any level, whether it be addiction or otherwise. So I use a step four, um, you know, when I when I did my first step four, it was really about the addiction and, like, really kind of exploring how the addiction had clouded my view of reality and my view of who I was and my part in my relationships. Um, but even now, I use it like that, but I also use it to inventory my fears because I often, like, I have some real bad anxiety and depression. They're a really, like, horrible combination that I deal with uh, very regularly. And when my anxiety and depression get going, um, and I've kind of had a lot of that today, actually, one of the things that I go straight into doing is doing a step four and inventorying my fear, um, because my fear in so many ways corrupts my reality, and it paralyzes me, so I won't do anything because I'm already convinced of outcomes that are not promised outcomes, they're just what my fear is promising me, Um, and my fear will really cloud reality and will promise me all kinds of horrible things. Um, should I continue to follow my intuition? And it's not necessarily true, but the step four in taking inventory of those fears helps me to take a good look at myself and to understand where the fears are coming from and why they're there and how um, obeying them, obeying fear or letting fear drive me is actually hindering me from becoming the person that I want to become and from showing up as the woman that I want to show up as every day. Um, So today, for example, I woke up late, rolled out of bed late, still am behind on my work, and part of it is just because I've been having some severe anxiety, and it's very paralyzing to me. Um, And so one of the things that, like, I'm definitely going to spend tonight doing is taking an inventory of the fear that's kind of holding me down. Um, So I'm going to take you guys through a little bit of what that process is like for me. Um... The first time I went through the fourth step, it was really about, it was really about um, the addiction and how the addiction had really worked its way into my life. And so basically I would make a grid. And so people tend to either make a grid or kind of write it out as a narrative, but I really like the grid form because it's very nice and clear and easy to see. And so um, in the first column is, so I will, like, when I'm working the fourth step this way, I start from the point of resentment, um, which I really like as a place to start because it is, um, as an addict, 
really kind of it pinpoints um, where I need to do my work. Um, and so when you start with resentments, it's useful because you're starting very close to the wound, right? You're starting at this point in your own, like, spirit and, like, existence where you're holding things against other people, rightly or wrongly. Um, and so it's a really good opening place to kind of get into it and get started working on it. Um, and so the first column is the name of the person, institution, or event that I resent. The second column is the because column where I write down why I resent this person, institution, place, or event. The third column is um, how my relationship with that person or institution or the interactions I had there um, affected me. And then the fourth column is about my part in that relationship and what I did that also contributed to the resentment. Um, and so with fear, it works pretty much the same way. The first column is what I'm afraid of, the person, place, institution, or outcome that I'm afraid of. Um, the second column is why am I afraid of this thing? And then the third column is about how that's affecting me. And the fourth column is about my part. How am I feeding this fear? How have I... Um, held on to the sphere, what am I doing that's kind of allowing the sphere to drive me, right? Um, so, for example, we're just going to kind of take ourselves through, and well, and then let me end by saying that with both the resentment inventory and the fear inventory, at the very end, the fifth step I take is to go back and make af affirmations that contradict my resentment or fear. Um, so, I'll take you through an example right now. Okay, so I'm just going to give y'all an idea of how this works for me. Um, so we're going to do a really short fear inventory about, um, sorry, there's a train in the background. I live near a train. Um, we're going to do a short fear inventory based on, like, two of my biggest fears around sober dating. So I'm going to preface this by saying that I have started sober dating. I've been at it for a few weeks now, maybe a little longer than that. Maybe it's been like a month or so. I'm not exactly sure. But anyways, I um, have been feeling a lot of fear. Sorry, now there's an airplane passing. Y'all excuse me. There's like, <laughs> there's so much noise. Um, but anyways, like, I've been feeling a lot of resistance. Um, and I've been feeling that for a long time. In the beginning, I felt really resistant about trying to have a relationship just because I have never had a relationship that was not based on sex. And I have never really had a healthy relationship either. Um, And so it's very hard for me to peek past the trauma of abusive relationships. And it's very hard for me to understand how a healthy relationship even works because I have never really seen one um, outside of the relationships that I've had in the rooms, which 
are great and very healthy, but that also, but that also um, are not romantic. And so it was very hard for me to develop the willingness and the courage to even try sober dating. And now that I'm doing it, I feel like I'm hitting my head up a lot against my own trauma because um, my partner will do things that are very kind and very sweet, like hold my hand a certain way or rub my back or something. And I will have like flashbacks to old relationships where someone else did that um, and followed it by some, you know, followed up this really romantic or affectionate gesture with some a really abusive or violent gesture. And so it's been hard to reconcile that because my partner, I, I really think that like a, that my higher power reached out to give me the opportunity to practice dating on someone who is very kind and very gentle and who would not hurt me. Um, but at the same time, it's really hard to shake the ghosts of my past relationships when I'm with him because in the past I learned a certain narrative and that narrative was that in order to be loved I had to be perfect or I had to give something to my partner to make them want to stay with me because otherwise they wouldn't stay. Um, And so there was kind of a payoff relationship where it was very, where love was very transactional to me and with my new partner it's sometimes very, it causes me a lot of anxiety because we're together and we're not having sex and we're just getting to know each other and we're having fun and we're doing fun things. And he is very sweet and he is very kind. Um, But sometimes I get anxiety because this is very outside of my normal patterns. This is entirely outside of my normal patterns. And it, and I have to deal with the voice of my past, which tells me that, like, this isn't real. Nobody comes into a relationship for free. Nobody gives affection for free. Nobody gives romance for free. Um, and so that's been really difficult for me to to face up to. And so this is a fear inventory kind of, like, based on two fears I have around being honest and open in that relationship, particularly about the trauma stuff when it comes up. Because I get very embarrassed by my trauma stuff which I think is normal because it's kind of frustrating. (laughs) Um, And it makes you feel a little crazy because you can know you're safe and you can know you're with somebody that doesn't want to hurt you, but at the same time, your whole body can react in this way that is very, um, that feels, that makes you feel like you're in danger and that like somebody is trying to hurt you even if that's not the case. Um, And so I'm doing a fourth step around those fears. Um, to kind of maybe bring a little clarity there. So in the first column, we have the fear, and so the fear is I fear dating. And I fear dating because I've never done it successfully and because I have a lot of trauma around romantic relationships. This affects my ability to commit, my willingness to try new dating patterns, um, and my willingness to um, consider part- possible partners. My part in the fear is that Um, I believe that past patterns define me and that they will drive all my future patterns, um, that I'm not really trusting my higher power to provide a healthy partner, um, and negating the changes that I've made in my own life. So a lot of it's just about, like, 
failure to recognize that I've changed a lot as a person and I'm no longer reaching out to um, unhealthy partners and unhealthy partners seem to be less attracted to me when I'm not um, acting sick. Um, And, like, I need to acknowledge that I've changed a lot and the people who are attracted to me have changed a lot. And so I don't have to worry so much about whether or not this person is going to be abusive or whether or not they're going to hurt me because I'm not entering into the relationship, into this relationship as I've entered into old ones. Um, we're taking a lot of time to get to know each other and to spend time together um, and are just kind of like leaving sex out of the equation for the time being, which is a very new thing for me. Um And, like, I've got this relationship with myself and with my higher power that I've never had before. And so a lot of it's just about, like, trusting that, like, I can trust myself to know if this is a healthy relationship or not. I can trust my higher power to provide me with partners that, like, that don't conform to old patterns of partners that I used to pick. Um... And, like, even the way I met my partner right now, it's very different from how I would have met old partners. Um, We met mostly by accident through Dolly. Um, And we met despite the fact that I started avoiding him as soon as I figured out I didn't like him, which is very different from, like, my addictive self, because my addictive self would have been, like, well, that's an attractive man, and, you know, I'm going to go over there and talk to him and flirt and do all this stuff. And that's really not how it worked out. It just... I was avoiding him, and then he showed up, and we had a great conversation over coffee, and so we kept meeting for coffee to have, you know, keep having conversations, and it's very different because I treated him like a person from the moment we officially met, and he's also treated me like a person, so acknowledging those changes is a big deal for me because it kind of helps to expel the fear. Um, This is not so bad. Okay, so that's example one. Example two. I'm afraid that if Stephen ever finds out about my past dating history, he will leave me or see me differently. And I fear this because I find that my former love life is so shameful that I'm convinced that it disqualifies me from being worthy of acceptance. Um, Which is just to say that, like, there's just this weird thing when you've been, like, I don't know, like a victim of sexual assault or abuse at any point in your life is that, when people find that out, they tend to view you differently. And I don't even know how to explain it. Like, it's not even like they're nicer to you or anything like that. It's just different. And, like, you can feel the change. And it, like, really sucks. Because sometimes you just want to be a person. Like, you just want to be a normal person with a normal dating life who's, like, lived life normally. And that's not who I am. It's, you know, I'm moving towards, like, healthy relationships. But, like, I've never had one before, and, like, sometimes the details of, like, my other relationships, which, like, you know, I'm at a point, I don't have to share it right now with him if I don't want to, but, like, as we move forward, like, when that trauma stuff comes up, like, you know, it's something that I need to learn to be honest about so that we can kind of work with it and around it, if if that's something he's willing to do, but I just have a lot of resistance around that right now because it just feels like a lot, and I just kind of want to be, like, a normal person to him for a while. Um, and so, yeah, and it's just, but a lot of that's about fear, right? Like, I'm afraid that if he finds out, like, what I've been through or, like, what I've done or, like, 
how ugly my addiction got that, like, that'll be enough to change the way that he views me as a person. Um, and I'm afraid of that because it's happened before. You know, like, people act differently when they find out this or they find out that about you, um, no matter how much you've changed. And if that's the kind of person he is, then that's just a bridge that we'll have to cross when we get there, when I, you know, like, when we really start sharing honestly. So that's the fear and why I have the fear. And the fear affects my ability to trust my partner. It tr- it affects my ability and my willingness to take risks with my partner by sharing honestly. Um, it makes me want to hide my past and, like, that part of myself from my partner, which is foolish because it's, you know, your past is a part of you and, like, it doesn't define you and it doesn't necessarily, like, mark, you know, how your future is going to be, but it is a part of your story and it's a part of your history and it's important. And when we feel so much shame about our past that we can't share it, we're in trouble because, you know, secrets keep you sick, you know? And, like, all those things that you think you can't share, like, they'll keep you sick if you hide them because it's a part of who you are. And, like, we're not, I'm not super into hiding parts of who I am from other people. Um, I can acknowledge that, like, you know, maybe my trauma or, like, my past is, like, might be a little jarring for him and, like, you know, possibly could be too much. And if it is, then that's just kind of how it's going to be, you know. And, like, and then I can, like, let go and wait for somebody else or be on my own, you know. And it's it's just, like, but I can't not be honest with him simply because I want him to stick around because it, it – it violates my own boundaries because I'm hiding parts of myself that I'm ashamed of instead of loving myself fully and loving my story fully and recognizing that, like, I went through through some, like, pretty hard and dark shit, but it got me to where I am today, which is where I need to be, which is a much healthier place, and I'm not ashamed of that, you know? Um, And also to hide that from him would be to violate... The, you know, the, the essentially the vows of honesty that, like, we have because we've agreed to be honest with each other about our feelings and thoughts, and, like, that's something that's really important to me, but I'm just sort of learning how to do that and facing the fear of doing that. So my part, so what I do to feed this fear is a lot of self-shaming, um, a lot of holding on to the past, feeling unwilling to communicate with my partner, um, allowing fear to stop me from being honest and open um, and letting my trauma and my past set the tone for my new relationship, which it doesn't have to. That's a choice that I can make. Um, failing to see and note and celebrate the changes that I've made in my own life and letting and choosing to let my past eclipse those changes I've made because that's the thing. It's like I've been through stuff, and I've picked terrible partners, and I went through stuff with them that was really painful and traumatic, but also I was not the same person then that I am today. So much has changed, and when I choose to buy into this fear that if I tell my my current partner, you know, what's happened to me or, you know, the trauma responses that I have, like, when I buy into the fear that if he finds out about that stuff, it's going to be too much for him and he's not going to be able to take it, one of the one of the lies that I'm choosing to believe is that those things actually define me, and they don't. They're markers in my past that, like, mark the growth that I went through, and they mark the bottom I had to scrape, and they mark the process that brought me to 
powerlessness and unmanageability and ultimately this program which changed me um and i can acknowledge that like i've changed a lot and like i'm not the same woman who picked terrible partners and i'm not the same woman that like hid and felt shame and like refused to look at herself clearly because she was afraid of what she would find there like that's not who i am anymore and like the partner that i picked is more reflective of who I am now than who I was in the past. And that's a big deal to me. And, like, and to not share, like, violates all the work I've done because I'm choosing to buy into the fear that, like, all the changes I've made and all the work I've done don't actually amount to anything. My past still outweighs them. And that's just not true. The changes that I've made and the person that I am now will set the tone for what comes next and not my past. I've learned a lot of lessons from my past, but, like, I'm not interested in repeating my past patterns and part of my past patterns were hiding a lot of stuff from my partners so that they wouldn't abandon me okay so that's kind of how the step four works so it's basically what i'm afraid of why i'm afraid of it how, how that fear is affecting my life currently and then um, my part in propelling the fear so then what i do is i go through and i find i start making affirmations based on the fears so well, not based on the fears, but in opposition to the fears. Um, so the first affirmation is, I am not my past. The second one is, I take healthy risk, trusting in my higher power. Three, I have made changes in my life that run deeply, breaking my cycles of pain, trauma, and distrust. Four, I communicate bravely and honestly. Five, I give my partner the chance to earn my trust. Six, I have healthy relationships. And so, like, as I kind of, like, come to moments where I have to face these fears and, like, where I'm challenged to communicate with my partner more honestly, um, these are things that, like, I'm going to be telling myself all week and all day that things are different, that they've changed, that, like, I am not defined by what's happened to me or what's been done to me or even what I've done. I'm defined by what I'm doing today. And tomorrow I'll be defined by what I'm doing tomorrow, and I'll let those changes build up, and I will reap the benefits of having made those changes day by day and just taking it step by step. And I don't have to worry about, like, whether or not me and my partner will be dating next week or the week after that or, you know, if we're going to get married or if we're going to get buy a house and have kids together. Like, those are things I don't have to worry about. What I'm going to do is I'm going to affirm myself every day in my process, and I'm going to keep walking out my path. And I'm going to keep working my program, and I'm going to keep committing and leading into my process. And so my affirmations are all made in support of that. So anyways, that's basically the gist of how I do a fourth step. So I did an example about, like, fear, but, like, a lot of times I'll work from a point of resentment, too. Like, if I'm resenting my partner because I'm hiding shit from them, then I'm going to write, like, who do I resent? My partner. Why do I resent them? Because I feel like I can't tell them this and this and that. How does that affect me? It affects my sense of trust, my sense of safety, my sense of belonging. Um, I feel like I have to hide myself. And what's my part? My part is choosing to believe that my partner can't handle knowing the truth. My part is choosing to avoid telling my partner things because I don't want to risk them changing their view of me. Um, and those, so those are just examples of, like, ways that I would feed that resentment if that was the resentment I had. So, anyways, those are this is basically how I do my fourth step. Um, I hope that um, that is helpful to someone somewhere. Um, and hopefully you'll be hearing from Dolly when she gets back from her big old vacation. All right, y'all. I'm going to take us out.
God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Keep coming back because it works if you work it, but you got to work it every day and every night because you're worth it. Hey y'all, it's Bo. I just wanted to welcome you to the Midtimers podcast. We're so glad you're listening to us. Um, But before you get started listening, we want to remind you that this episode contains adult content that is not appropriate for people of all ages. We'd also just like to issue a general trigger warning. We discuss a lot of adult themes, including addiction, sexual assault, um, and those kinds of topics. So if you're particularly sensitive to those, this might not be the podcast for you. And then lastly, we'd like to just remind y'all that we are not mental health professionals. We're just people sharing our stories and our experiences. So you are welcome to listen, take what you like, and leave the rest. Hey guys, Dolly here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We'll be releasing an episode every Sunday. If you like what you hear and you want to know more about us, check out our blogs on our website. You can find us at www.midtimers.com. Also, if you want to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Pinterest, or YouTube at Midtimers, that's available. Connection is the opposite of addiction, and we'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, topics, suggestions, or if you want to share your story with us. We've taken on this project to explore connection, compassion, and vulnerability with ourselves and the world around us. Connecting with you is a huge part of that. Thank you for allowing us the honor of sharing our stories with you. So... It works if you work it, and you're worth it. We'll talk to you guys next week. Love you. Bye. Hey, y'all. It's Bo here, um, coming to you from a picnic table in the great outdoors. Um, I'm a sex and love addict, and I want to welcome you to Midtimers. I hope you can hear me all right. Um, <clears throat> today, we're going to be talking about some reading that I've been doing um, after I finished my 12 steps, my sponsor gave me a book, uh, to read called, uh, I think it's called Ready for Healing. Um, but it's about sex and love addiction and what causes it and how people go through it. And it's been a really interesting read so far. And so today I just want to talk about, um, some of the things I've been reading. So I kind of drug my heels a little bit in doing the reading because it was kind of hard to do in the beginning um, because I identified so much with the material because it's about sex and love addiction and I am a sex and love addict. Um, but it, it's I'm on chapter four and five now. I just finished and it has some really interesting things to say about the addictive cycle and the underlying causes of addiction. And so the argument that the book is making is that sex and love addiction is fueled not actually by a need and love for sex and love, but actually by control and fear and shame. Um, And so it comes from this place of fear and shame and then is really born out of the need to control fear and shame. Um, And so chapter five really sets up the idea that the addiction becomes the primary relationship that the, that the addict has. So the addict kind of becomes fused to this addiction because the addiction is giving them a sense of control over the fear and shame that they're experiencing. And I just really identified with, with that notion because the, the idea is that you have these belief systems and these negative core beliefs that kind of move you through this addictive cycle that's a little complex and we don't really have time to go into but the idea is that it all starts 
way before the acting out starts. It all starts way before addiction starts when as children we're kind of learning about ourselves and our culture. And so the book really goes into these unconscious thoughts that for a lot of people don't come up until um, a lot later in their in their process when they're in recovery or when they're in therapy and they don't because they're subconscious thoughts or unconscious thoughts um, and unconscious beliefs they tend not to come up immediately for the person as they're experiencing them Um, and so when they talk about these negative beliefs um, they focus a lot on four of them which they call the negative cultural beliefs Um, And so I just thought maybe today that we could go through them and talk about them a little bit um, because I've been doing some reflection um, on like the negative cultural beliefs that I've formed and the ones that I identify with in this book. Um, And so it's a really, it's just a really interesting concept. Um, And it's kind of really cool too when you're an addict and then you read a book about addiction and you identify so much with the pages because it makes you feel a little less alone. And I definitely identified with the negative cultural beliefs that they go through. Um... So one last thing before we get started is uh, when we talk about negative cultural beliefs, um, they're kind of almost contradictory in nature, which we'll we'll get into and you'll see as we go through them. And so what happens is you end up in what the book calls a double bind, which is um, it's basically it's defined as a distortion of reality that exists when following a rule or belief sets you up to fail. Um, and so I'll get into that too, once we get started on the cultural beliefs, but it's kind of the idea that like, should you follow any one of these cultural beliefs through to the end, which I, as a sex and love addict had really in active addiction done my best to do that they always lead to failure. Um, and so it's kind of an interesting and tough one. So let's get started. So the first one is I must be good to be worthy of love. Um, and the book notes that like this belief tends to rise up in women that have really strong religious backgrounds, um, women who have one or more parents who are addicts, um, tends to come up with perfectionists a lot. Um, and that women who internalize this belief, um, may choose partners that they feel are less than them, um, because those are partners that are safer it's easier to be good and therefore to be worthy of love of the person that you're with is you know worse than you for example so they tend to be people who the partners tend to be people who try to please the addict um oftentimes they are like substance abusers themselves but they are typically non-threatening so they make less money or they're not as attractive as the addict or they're you know they're just lesser in some way and the addict really focuses on that lesser in order to feel good because good makes her worthy of love and makes her lovable. Um, but then on the opposite side, um, some women, some lady addicts may disown sexuality, uh, entirely and have sort of a sexual anorexia. Um, because if she has the sensation that she is not good enough, um, and this is a really interesting one because I think that it's, it's very common. First of all, I think it's a really common sentiment in the rooms um, and it's a very common internalized belief is that we have to be good to be loved and we do a lot to be good enough to be loved and I don't know I think with like 
it's so funny with this one because I think in my addiction I identify like not only so much with the negative core belief but also with like every repercussion of believing the negative core belief I've spent a lot of time really trying to disown my sexuality because I felt I wasn't good enough um particularly when I was in high school after I'd been sexually assaulted for the first time I remember really going out of my way to like to do damage control and I really felt like I wasn't good enough for anybody um because I'd been raped and that kind of felt dirty and gross and I didn't want to get my dirty and gross on other people um and I went into like this long period of just like shame and controlling my shame and fear by hiding it entirely and really turning my sexuality off all the way um Because that reduced the risk of exposure to, one, sexual violence. And it also reduced the risk of exposure to somebody finding out what I had been through. And that I wasn't perfect. And that I was therefore not lovable. Um, But I also, like, went through periods where I definitely chose partners that were beneath me. I chose men that um, were kind of dumb or kind of ugly or really insecure or... Um, didn't have a job or when I was in college their grades weren't good enough or I mean just a like a host of men with like issues that made me feel like I was better than them because it was really easy to feel needed and they looked up to me as being good and so I could feel good and I could feel like I was worthy of their love um, but in the end I would just get tired of them because um yeah, I would just get tired of them. I don't know what it was, but I would get tired of them, and I would go somewhere else. Um, but I also think that I spent a lot of time really trying to be good to potential partners. Like, when I liked someone that I thought was my equal, I would really go out of my way to show him my goodness and show him how reliable I could be, how responsible I could be, how willing I was to be a partner, how um, kind I could be, how thoughtful I could be, um, because I thought that seeing those characteristics, and even, and, and those characteristics, like, I think that those are things that I have, but I think that I really tried to blow them up to cover up my shame and guilt for what had happened to me. And I was hoping that through that goodness, being good, that they would know that I had somehow made up for what I felt was my dirtiness and my unworthiness. Um, And it just didn't work. Like, it just really, really never, ever worked. It was pretty intensely not working at all. Um... Cause I, and it's really funny because I feel like in recovery, one of the things I really work on is like the notion, and I think it, it really starts with like self-care and like developing a relationship with yourself. Um, and that's really the beginning of it is just kind of like, I never felt good enough. I never felt worthy, but I had to treat myself like I was. And I had to show up for myself the way I wanted partners to show up for me. And it's so funny because I can even remember remember an early recovery when I was brainstorming like self-care lists and ways to take care of myself I remember like just thinking what was it I always wanted a romantic partner to do for me and I would make a list of those things and then I would do those things for myself so like I always wanted to go out on picnics I always wanted to be taken on a picnic and 
Um, nobody had ever really done that for me. And I was like, you know what? That's fine. I'm going to take myself on a picnic because I deserve fucking picnic. I'm a grown woman, have never had been on a romantic picnic in my life. I'm going to get a candle. I'm going to pack a bunch of food. I'm going to get a really pretty basket, maybe a little wine, who knows? And I'm going on a picnic. And that's what I did. And I kept doing those. I mean, I did like other stuff too. Like I showered and ate food and that kind of stuff. But I kept trying to do overtly kind and thoughtful and romantic things for myself to kind of start healing this, like this notion that like I had to be good to be loved because I wasn't very good. I was an addict and here I was still loving myself. And then it like just kept going when I got to step three and I was talking to God because I was like, I knew I needed a God that loved me no matter what. And my higher power came out for me that way. And having a relationship with a higher power that like held no judgment for me, that wasn't going to put me down, that wasn't condemning me was like a really big deal for me. And it's something, and internalizing that higher power was a really big deal. And it came through a lot of time. It came through a lot of prayer. It came through a lot of reading, but like the more I touch base with that higher power and the more I touch base and take care of myself, the better it all goes for me. Um, because nobody's really, you know, worthy of love. Alternatively, everyone's worthy of love. You know what I mean? It's like, you can never be good enough to be loved. You just are loved. It just is what it is, you know? And I, that was something that I needed to show myself. And that's something I needed to see from my higher power. And I feel like once I started working there, I started to see it from other people too. It just took a little time. Um, so the second one is, I am not really a woman unless someone desires me. Um, and so the book notes that a broken sense of self leaves the addict feeling vulnerable to basing her identity on desirability. Um, so oftentimes she'll become romantic because she feels like a partner chose her, but not because she also chose the partner. Um, and she starts to borrow functioning from the feelings of being desired. And then she uses seduction over others to gain feelings of power. And so what tends to happen is she tends to be drawn to emotionally immature partners. And her partners tend to be people who, uh, they're just undervalued emotionally. They tend to act like children. Um, They aggravate her, um, but she sticks with them. And this was a really interesting one for me because I, it's so funny. I never thought about this until I was reading this book, but I remember when I was in middle school, um, I remember not having a boyfriend and I remember that was the time when everybody was like starting to get boyfriends and stuff and I did not have one. And I remember feeling like girls who got their first boyfriend in like sixth grade tended to have like three more by eighth grade at least, you know? And I just never had one. And I remember thinking like, oh, there's like this thing where after the first boy's interested in you and like you have your first boyfriend, there's like this, it's like shattering, it's like the buy-in has been done and like your value goes up because then other boys want you because the first boy wanted you and like. And then it just keeps going because the more people who want you, the more like popular, popular you are, the more attractive you are, the more interesting you are. And then other people become convinced of it and other men follow sweet after the first boyfriend. So 
your value only increases. And I can remember thinking about it in those terms, like in terms of value, who was valuable and who wasn't. And nobody was interested in me. And so I felt like I had no value. But I felt like the moment somebody was interested in me, it would change things and I would be more valuable to like future potential partners. It was like the beginning of the addiction. I didn't even know it. It was crazy. Um, And I feel like in active addiction, like I spent a lot of time around emotionally immature men who really wanted me sexually but had no intention of like having a relationship with me. And the more of them that wanted me sexually, the more value I felt like I had. But at the same time, for all this accumulating value, I wasn't getting what I really wanted, which was like love and care and like a general sense of respect. And so I was pissed all the time. And it and it's so funny because I was angry a lot, but I the anger really quickly died down into just coldness. Like I just felt cold towards them. And I could get like my addictive payoff. I could get my high from them. But, like, they weren't really good for, like, much outside of that. Like, they were useless to me in the same ways that I seemed useless to them. Like, and I felt like we were just all playing this game together where we were adding value to each other, taking away value, and and kind of moving pieces around on a chessboard. And I didn't really have a lot of feeling for myself and them. And I think when I got to that point, too, that was the point where I was, like convinced that 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 was just how life was supposed to be for me like I just didn't think I was meant for like normal healthy relationships because this was all that was coming to me and it just kept coming and like so I figured I would just have to play that game and like that normal relationships were like beyond me and like impossible for me um but I could be valuable and I could be like fully a woman if somebody was interested in me and the more people that were interested in me the more valuable I was um and it's kind of weird now it's like I feel like there was a lot of pain and shame tied up in that belief system too um And, like, going through recovery is really funny because it's, like, I I remember when I was acting out, like, I didn't feel like I had a choice. I kind of felt like it was destiny. I kind of felt like it was the game we were playing and I was just following the rules. So, like, when I got chosen, I went. Um, and when I didn't get chosen, I stayed, you know. But the the name of the game was to, like, be chosen. And so that's what I was, like, striving for. And so it's, like, so weird because I feel like one of the first things that, like, sobriety gave me was, like, the ability to say no, which was something I didn't have because I felt like I was chosen. And because I was chosen, I didn't have a choice. Um, and I remember, like, even in early sobriety, like, if, you know, a man would hit on me when I was at work or, like, if somebody would say something when I was walking down the street, it... I would just be like, no, I don't want this. Like, I'm trying to be sober. You're kind of trying to fuck up my whole sober thing by, like, hollering at me or trying to get my number or whatever. And, like, that's problematic because I'm not trying to do this right now. I'm trying to be sober. And it was the first time in my life where I kind of felt like I had a choice. And there's a lot of dignity in having a choice. I don't, I don't think I ever felt dignified before either. 
And so I learned to say no. And I learned to say, to say like, no, I'm not interested. No. Um, which I don't really think I had that before. I don't, yeah, I don't ever think that I felt that before. Like when somebody wanted me, I like, I just wanted to be wanted, you know? And so it's weird, like now being through my 12 steps and like having gotten the go ahead to date, like, you know, I started my dating process and it's, it's so funny cause it's like the partner that I have now chose me and I chose him and there was like this choice on both sides and so it didn't feel like this shameful horrible I mean it didn't feel like this shameful thing where like somebody chose me and I went along with it it feels like I'm taking my time to get to know a person so I can choose how I want to react to them and when we first got to know each other I got to know him a little bit and then I chose to date him and then we're still getting to know each other and there are choices that I have to make in the future and like it's the first time I've ever really felt that way like I've always felt like like there was no choice like somebody was interested in me and I had to go along with it because that's what made me feel good that's what made me feel like myself that's what made me feel like a whole person like I was valuable um and it's just kind of different now because I have choices that I don't think I had before which is fascinating um okay let's move on to number three so the third one is if I am sexual I am bad and so basically like the book talks about women who internalize this belief um know that they want sex but then they feel bad for wanting sex um and it is like it's so funny because I feel like out of all of these Well, maybe, yeah, no, I feel like out of all of these, this is the one I identify with the most. And I think in part it's because of my, like, very conservative cultural upbringing that didn't really talk about sex. Like, they would say, like, don't have sex outside of marriage because it's a sin and it's bad if you do. But also sex is natural and wonderful and beautiful and God made it and that's why we have it, right? But it was just confusing because that's all they would say about it. And so for me, like, an unmarried, like, young woman, like... I had a budding sexuality that I didn't know what to do with it. And I knew that, like, sexuality is supposed to be beautiful, but it's only supposed to be beautiful when you're married. And I wasn't married, but I was having sexual feelings, and I just didn't know how to deal with it. Because I felt bad, like, something's wrong with me. Something, like, I'm inherently dirty, I'm inherently sinful, like, this is bad. Um, And I feel like that did an incredible amount to my sexuality like from the moment my sexuality kind of started to be a thing I felt bad about it um in the book they talk about how um addicts that internalize this belief system often look for bad boys um as an opportunity to be sexual um which I think, I think it's really, it's a really interesting concept because I think that was totally true for me because like the partners that I would choose when I was younger were men who were totally free sexually, um, who either didn't have the religious upbringing I had or had totally decided to go against it or like whatever. And like in response to their 
open free sexuality I could also release my repressed sexuality and like that was freeing to me it was also really dangerous because the partners I was choosing were not always the best of people um but it kind of felt like that was the only way to deal with what I was going through So, yeah, it was just, like, an interesting time in life. Very interesting time in life. Um, And honestly, it's one of the things that I struggle with the most. I feel like if I am attracted to a man, I feel very guilty. If I, you know, go out on a date, I feel guilty. I don't want to talk about it. I feel shame. I feel like afraid. And I think that like that all goes back to this like internalized belief that like my sexuality itself is bad and evil and like anything that doesn't look like the sexuality that my parents tried to give me through religion is like unhealthy and shameful and like I really have to deal with that on basically a daily basis like I feel like it's all the time that like I kind of butt my head up against this one because I'm constantly like working with my sexuality and on my sexuality and like not trying to kill it but like trying to love on myself and like heal what's been broken and it's hard to even so much as look at your sexuality when you have internalized that your sexuality inherently is bad and that like having sexual feelings or sexual desires is bad um it's just kind of a tough one to deal with and I feel like I butt my head up against it a lot especially like once I got past my 12 steps and like the doors to dating open because like for the first time dating dating wasn't on my bottom lines and consequently I had like the go-ahead to be attracted to people and to be interested in people and like to let my sexuality act in healthy ways um, for the first time in my life, which was scary because one, I'd never done it before, but two, it was scary because I had just like really internalized the notion that like being attracted to someone was bad and it was shameful and having sexual feelings were bad and they were shameful. Um, and so like, I really deal with that one on a regular basis and like really most of what I do with it is I just kind of look at it and go no you know like that's not true my sexuality is not bad and shameful it's beautiful it's part of what being human is I'm a human I'm having a fully human experience that's all that anyone can ask of me and I kind of just try to hang out there and like go through it but it's a tough one for me that one's probably one of my toughest ones all right and then the last one I must be sexual to be lovable. This is the one I'm actually, like, butting my head up against right now the most. Um, I feel like I've started almost every one of my adult relationships, but also probably my teenage relationships with sex, like, every single one. And so I'm currently dating a person, and we're not having sex because we're getting to know each other and, like, actually dating and talking to each other and stuff. And he, yeah, and so, like, we're not having sex. And I have so much anxiety about not having sex with him. Like, it just gives me a lot of anxiety. And I think, in part, it's because the partners that I chose before 
would not have entertained me or spent time with me or paid any attention to me if they hadn't been, if they weren't getting sex. Um, and so like here, I've got this dude who's been hanging around for more than a month now, just like hanging out with me and like doing things with me. And he is still here despite the fact that I haven't had sex with him. Um, I think in a lot of ways in past relationships, having sex was kind of like earning my keep. Um, because I didn't really think there was a reason for anyone to keep me around if I wasn't having sex with them, because that's it's actually what partners like literally straight up told me when I was like acting out was that, you know, if you're not going to have sex, you can't stay here. If you're not going to have sex, I don't want to see you. If you're not, you know, like, um, yeah, I mean, I think like the first time I ever had a crush on a boy, he, I'm not even going to go into the whole story because it's very painful and long <laughs> one day, but not today. It deserves its own like 15 minute segment. But anyways, after he did a bunch of really not okay things, and I think it was like 14 or 15, he was like 18 or 19. He was like, he told me he loved me, told me all this stuff. I was super excited. And then he told me that he wanted to have sex with me and I had never had sex before. Grew up in a super conservative home. And I was like, no, like I'm not ready. I will at some point, but I'm not ready now. And he just like left like just straight up left and he was like well if you don't have sex with me then I don't love you and I don't care about you and I don't ever want to see you or hear from you again um and I feel like that really set the tone for what my relationships would be like in the future because I feel like sexuality played such a huge role in it was like I was trying to buy time with sex um and I could buy time with sex I really could like it's not even just like you know, I made it up in my head. I could buy time with sex. I could buy attention with sex. I could, you know, like, I could. And I could violate my own needs by serving my partner's needs. But, like, if it made my partner stay, then it was worth my time. And it was worth doing to me at the time. Um, and so it's really funny to kind of be with somebody who is really trying to get to know me as like a person and not like an inanimate object um because everything's like going fine and like well enough but there's still this like fear like I'm waiting for like the other foot to come down where he's just like hey if we're not gonna have sex in the next few weeks and like I'm out because I've spent a lot of time invested a lot of time here and I feel like I'm not getting anything um and honestly like with that like I just try to communicate like I just try to communicate that I'm nervous because like this dating experience that I'm having now is very outside of like all the dating experiences I've ever had before and I'm putting new patterns into play that I've never put in before and that's really hard um but I also just have this like old way of thinking that I have to deal with on a regular basis with him and it's just kind of tough sometimes. Um, but I just tried to, like, be honest about it and, like, check it in with my group people and, like, and to keep in practice, like, the self-care and the prayer and all the other things we talked about for the other um, beliefs because, like, they really do make the difference for me. Um, because the notion is... then I'm not good enough to be loved just on my own. And that's not true. You know, like we kind of talked about that when we talked about the first one, which is I must be good to be loved. You don't have to be good to be loved. You don't have to be sexual to be loved. You just have to be a person. Like, And so 
I'm a person and fully a person when I'm taking care of myself and when I'm in conscious contact with my higher power and when I'm being really honest with the people that my higher power has put in my path to help me learn how to take care of me. Um, and those things are all really big deals to me and I really kind of try to fight to protect them. So, yeah, it's really interesting. And one of the, you know, last thing, one of the things, the other things that the book talks about a lot is um, the notion of the double bind, which again is like, basically like if you follow any of these belief systems through to the end, you're destined for failure, right? But they also contradict each other. So if I feel like I have to be good enough to be loved, the belief itself will take me to failure because you can never be good enough to be loved because love isn't based on goodness. It's based on grace and choice. And yeah, it's not goodness. And there's no person that's good enough. We're all just people, imperfect people, just doing our best, you know? Um... But if you combine that with, if I am sexual, I am bad, and you have both of those running around in your head, because I think I've got all four of these running around in my head, so it gets to be complicated. I can think, you know, to be lovable, I have to be good, but if I'm sexual, I'm bad. And what that means is that, like, if I'm acting out, that means that I have to split my personality, I have to compartmentalize to have a good side and a bad side, or I have to not have sex so that I'm not bad, so that I'm good enough to be loved. But if somebody loves me and we get married and I can't have sex with them because sex makes me bad and if I'm bad they can't love me, then I'm in trouble again. And so it's just kind of like the belief systems themselves are like wired in this way to make your life as difficult as possible. And so undoing them and really reaching back into your mind to like to touch them and to deal with them is really, really important in recovery. Um, I spend a lot of time trying to undo like the double binds and trying to undo my old thought patterns. And like the more I do, the more I benefit from it. It's just a lot of, it's work, but it's like well worth it. And it really has made like all the difference for me. So that's it from me. Um, I hope you all have a lovely day. I'm going to go for a walk. Peace, grace, and serenity to you all. I'll talk to you later.